Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Here you are with enough time and enough smarts to listen to a podcast about politics. And here am I, lucky enough to be banging on about politics to you for a small fee, because I love this job. But how did we get here? Is it because we were clever? Because we worked hard? Because our parents sent us to a good school and made us do our homework? Because we got a leg up from a family friend or inherited a bit of cash at the right time? Did we guess just get lucky or did we merit it? With me to talk about this fascinating question is Adrian Waldridge, the Badgett columnist at The Economist. That's the column at the end of the Britain section and the author of a new book, The Aristocracy of Talent, How Merit Made the Modern World. Adrian, welcome to The Bunker. Uh, Thank you for having me. Adrian, in Britain, the middle classes are often at pains to point out that they're only a couple of generations away from poverty. It lends a kind of authenticity to your opinion that people fear it might otherwise lack. But on the other hand, we continue as a nation to be fascinated by aristocracy, royalty, even while we affect to despise this hereditary principle. Is it just a British thing? I don't think it's just a British thing, because even if you if you look at the United States, which considers itself to be uh, the ultimate meritocracy, probably wrongly, but nevertheless, it, it considers itself to be so. They are fa- absolutely fascinated with the British aristocracy, absolutely fa- fascinated by British royalty. But they're also fascinated by their own version of the aristocracy, which is families such as the Kennedys and, uh, and the Bushes. So I don't think it's only a British thing. Then you have the the... the the French, who are in their own mind the ultimate meritocracy, the ultimate inheritors of the sort of the French uh, meritocratic revolution in the late uh, 18th century, and they are also preoccupied by the sort of monarchical version of the presidency. And I think that uh, you know that Macron has been particularly uh, keen on emphasising this quasi-monarchical role of the, the of the uh, of the president embodying the dignity of the state. So this and this peculiar duality between, on the one hand, being really preoccupied by people who make it on their own merits and by grit uh, and self-determination, on the other hand, being rather in love with the, the old aristocratic noblesse oblige class is something that's certainly true of Britain, but true more broadly as well. One of the most fascinating things about your book is that you point out that although most countries have had some kind of hereditary aristocracy and 
life has been based around that for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's always been possible for other people to make their way to the top. Tell us how that might happen in, say, Tudor England. Basically, pre-modern societies were um, aristocracies. There were societies in which you inherited your position, uh, societies in which jobs were given away on the basis of patronage or even bought and sold. And there were societies in which social mobility was frowned on um, and in some ways was made legally uh, very difficult to, to have. But at the same time, the work of the world has to be done. You need competent people to uh, do the work of the world. And it's quite often the case that aristocrats are born stupid as well as lazy. And you need competent people to come along. Um, and you've always had certain mechanisms of social mobility, which I call sponsored social mobility, whereby aristocrats um, and people in positions of power deliberately reach out to clever, poor people. Uh, and if you think of Winchester Public School, that was designed to provide education for the poor. Um, if you think of Eton, strangely enough, there was a big class of people at Eton, the King's Scholars, who were the same. They were supposed to be poor scholars who were brought in to mix with the aristocracy and to provide the smarts of, this, of the church and the state. And in Tudor England, you had these two extraordinary people, Thomas Woolsey, the son of a butcher, and Thomas Cromwell, the son of a sort of ne'er-do-well, almost. Um, and both came from lowly backgrounds. Both really were the architects of the modern state structure and became extraordinarily powerful and indeed extraordinarily rich on the basis of their bureaucratic competence, essentially. With the horrible irony, of course, that we know what Eton and Winchester are now, and they are certainly not foundations set up to educate poor boys. We'll talk more about that later. Sure. Plato famously wrote about how to build a well-functioning state in the Republic, and he believed in a ruling class, an elite, but that elite was very different from perhaps the one that we might tolerate now. How was that class selected and trained? Well, first of all, let me say that Plato's Republic is really an astonishing book, and I'd recommend anybody who hasn't read it to, 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 yeah. to read it. It's sort of endlessly it's fascinating book. And what Plato believed in was having an aristocracy of merit, uh, and an aristocracy of merit that was, that was selected on the basis of equality of opportunity. Uh, so, yes, he believed in aristocracy, but no, it wasn't the old aristocracy of inherited position. And he argued some extraordinarily radical things. One is that he divided society into men of gold, the rulers, men of silver, the, the sort of middle ranks, and men of bronze, who are the people at the bottom. And he argued on the basis of his observation of the world that men of gold could appear in any rank of society. You had to look through the whole of society in order to find this talent. This talent is an absolutely precious resource which the state must nurture, but it could occur anywhere. And secondly, he argued something which is strangely even more radical than that at the time, which is it's not necessarily the case that it's only men who have this golden quality. It might also occur in women. And indeed, the likelihood of occurring in women is so, so great that we have to concede, as he would have done, said, that the guardian class should have lots of women in it, as well as lots of men. You know, presented in you know, conservative terms, we must have an aristocracy. He then goes on to say, but the aristocracy must be chosen from the whole of society and must be chosen from both genders. So this is a very radical challenge to um, the status quo in Athens at the time. 
and not one that many societies took up for a long time. You write about how some societies have tried to build meritocracies. And one of the most fascinating examples you had was China, which developed a very, very sophisticated way of trying to identify the cleverest and most capable people, didn't it? Absolutely. China is extraordinary because from the early Middle Ages, really, at a time when um, Britain was ruled by people with names like Eric Bloodaxe, China was creating an examination state whereby scholars were chosen from right across the country uh, to work for the emperor and to administer the state. Uh, And at the height of its uh, powers, this examination system really uh, tested uh, about 10% of the population of China. And it tested them in a way that was, was, was quite extraordinary. They had all sorts of mechanisms to make sure that there wasn't any nepotism, there wasn't any cheating, they had blind marking, they put people in sort of examination halls for an entire week. And although obviously it helped if you came from a rich and privileged background, because what you were being tested on was your knowledge of the Confucian classics, it was still something that, that allowed you know, uh, quite a, a broad range of, of, of people who, who, who could invest in the education of their children to get to the very, to the heights of, uh, uh, of power in the country, which is advising the emperor. And you also write about Jews and how they achieved enormous success in many societies, despite, for example, being actively discriminated against at top US universities. How was that possible for them? Well, the interesting, one of the many interesting things about the Jewish population is that most preceding views of merit were basically about how a nation state or a city state, as in Plato's case, or an imperial state, an empire state, as in China's case, chooses people to administer uh, a block of land, you know, uh, you know a country or a city. Uh, And in the Jewish population, it's a much more mobile notion of merit because this is a population that loses its land and is scattered widely across Europe. So they have a a notion of merit which isn't just about serving a political class or the the church, but which is about surviving as uh, refugees almost. And they put an enormous amount of emphasis on portable skills. Basically, meritocracy is to some extent something built into their religion because it's an extraordinarily intellectually demanding religion, demands people absorbing not, not just you know, holy books, but a whole series of rules about how to conduct your life. Um, and it's uh, a, a religion which pl- places great emphasis on literacy very early on. But that early emphasis on literacy is then reinforced by the scattering of the, uh, of the population across the Middle East and, uh, and across Europe. And if you look at the, you know, the achievements of uh, the Jewish population in science and uh, literature and the arts, it is quite extraordinary. And I think it's something that's deeply rooted in a culture which, from the very earliest point, valued these skills and then, then, then had those skills honed in, you know, by, by the need to survive. When we get to the 1920s, even earlier, actually, we, we see the rise of eugenics, which is you know, in short, deliberately trying to breed cleverer people. And this is something that is pretty much anathema now, but it became popular and even a kind of received wisdom on the left in the 1920s. Tell us a bit more about why it was so appealing to people who normally might might seem to oppose it. Well, the idea of the word eugenics was invented by an Englishman 
called Sir Francis Galton, who is Charles Darwin's cousin. Um, and it was all about breeding, selecting um, what was regarded as an intellectually and physically superior sort of uh, class of people. And this became an enormously popular idea. So it started in England. People associate eugenics with Hitler. They associate it with Germany. Um, and they associate it with the period leading up to the Second World War. It really begins in the 19th century, much more in England than elsewhere. And it's something that is also taken up very much by the, by the left. Again, people associate it because of Hitler with the right. Actually, it's taken up more by the left than the right. And people such as H.G. Wells, Bernard Shaw, uh, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, all great figures in the progressive uh, movement, take up this idea with a real fervour. And most, I would say, if not all of the uh, advocates of family planning, such as Marie Stokes, uh, are also eugenicists. So these eugenicists, of course, take to intelligence testing um, because that's a, that's, that's a tool. And indeed, most of the sort of intellectual groundwork for intelligence testing is done by Francis Galton. So the history of sort of measuring merit um, is very, very tightly bound up with the history of uh, eugenics, but it's not, it's not Hitler's eugenics. It's a much more pervasive thing in uh, our culture and very strongly associated with Britain and also indeed the United States. Someone even proposed identifying the cleverest people in the population and bringing them to Westminster Abbey and marrying them and paying them vast sums, sums of money to go off and breed, didn't they? That was Sir Francis Galton. He wanted them yeah. all to have a, 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 a sort of a, a, a big collective wedding ceremony. And indeed, you know, if we, we think of sort of the, the, the great gods of progressivism, Bertrand Russell said everybody should be tested for their, for their mental abilities and be given a sort of ticket which would tell them who they could procreate with. Uh, so it was a very pervasive idea and, of course, satirised very brilliantly by um, Aldous Huxley in Brave New World, where you, you know, the, the process of reproduction then is, is, has become taken over by, by laboratories and, uh, and scientists. Um, and, of course, this does lead, um, these, the, these ideas do lead eventually to um, you know, the tragedy of the, uh, of the 1930s and have since rightly been anathema. One of the points you make towards the end of the book is that, in some ways, societies in Britain and America particularly are ending up moving towards that selective breeding, if you like, because of what is called assortative mating. Now, that's a slightly unpleasant term for something quite simple, isn't it? Tell us, tell us what's going on. Well, what happens, what assortative mating, which is a, you know, a term that scientists like to use and geneticists like to use, essentially means that like marries like that similar people uh, will tend to associate with and marry other uh, similar people. Now, to some extent, that's always been the case, that working people, class people married working class people, aristocrats married other aristocrats. But what's happened now in, in, in modern sort of meritocratic society is that education becomes a vast sorting mechanism, whereby people are sorted out in terms of their educational performance, their educational credentials, uh, and particularly they're sorted into the university classes and the non-university classes, people who go to elite universities or less elite universities. And that means that in the sort of marrying period of life, people who do well at university will will associate with people who also do well at university. I mean, again, meaning like marrying like. And the second thing is the enormous progress that women have made in the workforce means 
that successful career women will tend to meet successful career men. The boss will marry another boss who they meet at Davos or something like that. So more and more, you're getting highly successful people marrying highly successful people. And this does two things. One is it, is it, it sort of elongates the income pyramid. Uh, because if you imagine a shelf stacker marrying a shelf stacker, that combined incomes are such and such. Uh, a CEO marrying another CEO, their combined incomes will be incredibly many more multiple times of that. And secondly, uh, it means that the rich and successful people have enormous resources, both personal resources in terms of their own commitment to education and just physical resources to put into the production of really, really successful, academically committed children. Uh, and that is one area in which we're, we're, we're getting sort of modern meritocracy, becoming an aristocracy, basically, an aristocracy to some extent of ability and an aristocracy also of material goods. And this is one of the reasons you argue that Britain and the US are becoming less like meritocracies. What are the forces that are shoring up inherited privilege in this country, apart from assortative mating? Um, one of them is this peculiar divergence that we've seen in the educational system. That uh, up until the 1960s, there was a very strong meritocratic tradition within the state sector, particularly manifested in grammar schools, and a sort of commitment of that in the state sector that we can be better. Than private schools, we can get all sorts of people into the best universities. We can take over the country. That the real embodiment of uh, of virtue lies in the state educational system and the public school educational system. At the same time, up until the nineteen sixties, very much about character, sports, all rounded achievement. Uh, and what happened in, in, from the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies onwards? is that the state sector became less committed to uh, academic merit. It became more committed to mixed setting, uh, getting rid of um, educational selection, sort of broadly progressive ideas that children should be allowed to mature at their own speed. At the same time, the private sector, the public schools, as we call them in this country, uh, became much, much more committed to meritocracy. They became exam factories, partly because their parents wanted them to be, uh, their children to do very well academically, and partly because they actually got a series of very, very embarrassing, um, you know, results from being investigated by school inspectors. And actually, Eaton was, 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 was doing incredibly badly in the early 1960s when it came to A-levels and O-levels. So. These public schools, which charge an enormous amount of money, are focusing incredibly strongly on academic performance and on training their children to do, their pupils to do extremely well academically. So there's the educational disparity. And then there's another thing which has been going on, which is the globalization of the elite. The, the idea of meritocracy was to take people from the village school to the summit of British society, French society, American society, or whatever, build a ladder from the bottom to the top. And what we, what's happened now is a lot of the top has become global rather than just purely national. It's you know the Davos class of people who are at the top of global companies, globally oriented academic institutions, divorced from broader society and more and more populated by people who spend all their time meeting other people the same people, you know, the Davos class. Um, and, you know, so more and more they're fl floating above uh, our meritocratic mechanisms such as they are. 
You have a lot of praise for the role grammar schools that play, played in the post-war period in the UK in, in the book. And, you know, they did certainly work very well. My mother, mother's life was transformed as a result of going to a grammar school. But in the UK, we can see that the remaining ones are not working for social mobility. We can see that from the proportion of kids on free school meals who are going to them. It's um, 2.6% versus 13.4% nationally who are on free school meals who are on state schools. And everyone knows that you can game the 11 plus by tutoring. Everyone does it. So what has gone wrong with that ideal? Well, I have a lot of uh, warm words, as it were for educational selection, which was manifested in grammar schools. But grammar schools were a very imperfect manifestation of the principle of educational selection. They worked for some people. They didn't work for uh, large numbers of other people. Um, And um, the uh, system had all sorts of imperfections or, or, or failures, one of which was the number of places available in, let's say, Wales was much greater than the number of places uh, available in the expanding suburbs outside London. Um, so they were in, imperfect manifestations. They did create this class of people who were branded for life as failures or felt that they were branded for life as failures, you know, who went to secondary modern schools. Uh, and I would say of the the, the, the grammar school system that, um, you know, the division into sheep and goats was a terribly tragic division, but it wasn't what was designed, you know, we, we were designed originally to have a, a, a grammar school stream, but also a technical schools, which provide technical education uh, linked to local companies. And Germany, which still has the grammar school system, um, it's survived partly because, you know, it's also linked to a very, very successful vocational schooling system. The other thing I would say about this is, uh, you know, I would say there's a case for more educational selection which is a process of matching ability to, 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 to opportunity. But we need many, many, a much greater variety of secondary schools of which some would be academically uh, selective, uh, others not. Uh, and we also, in my opinion, need to rely uh, very much more on objective tests, um, IQ tests, uh, and things like that. And one of the things about the existing grammar schools is I think that they tend to rely much more on interviews much more on tests of academic prowess and they are skewed and deliberately skewed i would say to um the the children of of, a fairly prosperous middle class parents on the other hand with the academy schools we're getting the rise of a class of schools uh which is extremely successful there's a sixth form college um in the east of london which now gets more children into um Oxford and Cambridge than Eton does, which has a selective intake at uh, six forms. But most of the people in that selective intake uh, are immigrants or, or the children of immigrants. Um, and many, many of them are on free school meals. So there are, the academy movement has led to a greater diversity of state school uh, education and more emphasis on achievement and merit. So I think we are moving in the, strangely enough, we're moving in the right direction Interesting you say that because I was thinking about Boris Johnson last week when he was trying to defend the catch-up plans for pupils who've fallen behind during lockdown or the lack of catch-up plans. During yeah. He said middle-class parents can buy tuition because those parents work hard. What does that say about his views on meritocracy and the 
Conservatives see on meritocracy more widely. Well, I would say that using the phrase "because their parents work hard" is an, uh, is very invidious, and I would say that you know poorer parents probably work much harder um, than, than richer parents because um, they're in very very demanding jobs, uh, and many richer parents, particularly during this this lockdown, have sat at ho- home in relative uh, relative comfort. So that is invidious. Uh, I would also say that um, when it comes to making up for this shortfall during uh, lockdown. Um, I would be in favour of, of a significantly greater spending on catch-up, precisely because the burden of the lockdown and the educational disadvantages that come from um, the lockdown of not being going to schools are b- b- borne disproportionately by, by poorer parents and, more importantly, poorer children. And it's absolutely vital that we try and do whatever we can to, to make up for that short shortfall. You know, a, a meritocracy depends on an, a serious attempt to provide equality of opportunity. So this opportunity is not determined by who your parents are, but is determined by you know, how much you can you know, get ahead on the basis of your own merits. So I think we should be doing everything we can to, to do a little bit more for, for that situation. The problem is that we have a very weak uh, Secretary of State for Education uh, and the Treasury saw him as an easy person to, to trample over, which it then did. Indeed. Unlike some other thinkers at the moment, you aren't arguing, of course, for abandoning meritocracy as a principle, quite the opposite. But how can we get it back, schools aside? How can you wrest the rich from their private schools? Is it more tax on wealth, property, inheritance, which is something often proposed by my employee, the LSE? Is that the answer? Or are the are the solutions less less about redistribution? Um, the solutions, I, I, I would say that the, the, there are two sorts of solutions being advocated at the moment. One sort of solution is that meritocracy is so inevitably corrupted by money that what we need to do is to move to a, a less meritocratic society and replace the ideal of equality of opportunity with the ideal of equality of outcome or equity uh, and have a much, much less emphasis on competition, much less emphasis on rising to a high level in society uh, or in the economy and more emphasis on sharing rewards more fairly. I think that that's a problem uh, for many reasons, partly because I think the range of talents in the, the human species is so huge, but partly because um, it's not good ultimately for economic prosperity. Um, we need to make the best use of the talents we have available because so much new technology depends on very, very high levels of very specialised uh, and IQ-rich talent. The uh, second solution is to make a reality of meritocracy. Uh, that's the solution I advocate in my book. But I think making a reality of meritocracy is something that's very, very difficult, partly because we have the corruption of meritocracy by money and partly because we have this process of assortative mating whereby privileged people can pass on great deals of great amounts of privilege to their children. So I think we need a very active intervention, as it were, in the talent market by the state to ensure that people um, uh, are given education suited to their uh, abilities. And I would advocate um, a lot more use of IQ tests or standardized tests very early on in life to find talent where it's missed a lot of more intervention to provide enriched education in poorer areas for, for you know, through nursery school education, uh, educational priority areas for, for, for poorer children, uh, and um, a lot more use of academically specialised schools. We should be looking for talent 
with the same sort of enthusiasm that we're looking for sort of first-class football players and the rest of it. And I would also argue very strongly that we should have a system whereby private schools, public schools, are restored to their original function. Their original function was to provide education for poor children um, who were languishing because they didn't have the proper degree of educational opportunities. So I would say that these public schools, remember, these public schools have charitable status, and at the moment they are essentially accessed by the children of financiers um, and by foreign money. About a third of places um, in, in British public schools are taken up by um, people who are domiciled abroad. So that means we're using the notion of charitable status to educate the children of extreme wealth and privilege of Britain and extreme wealth and privilege around the world. And I would say that they should have to allocate at least 50% of their places to children on the basis of pure academic ability as measured by robust tests rather than your ability to, 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 to do Latin and Greek um, in order to keep their charitable status. In other words, restored to their original function. Adrian, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World is out now, published by Alan Lane. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can support the show on Patreon too. We'd love it if you did. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. Producer is Andrew Harrison. And the assistant producers are Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovich. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieburn, and the Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.